From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm Jennifer Shutt, appropriations reporter at CQ, filling in this week for David Lerman. This week, the House Appropriations Committee will hold its first full committee markups for fiscal 2019. We'll be starting out with two of the less contentious bills, and with me today to talk about those is Kelly Madrick, who will be covering the military construction VA bill markup, and Catherine Tully-McManus, who will be reporting on the legislative branch markup for CQ. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Jen. Kelly, why don't you walk us through what the military construction VA appropriations bill funds and how this year will compare with the fiscal 2018 bill? Yeah, so the 2018 budget deal supplied a pretty big increase for both veterans programs and military construction in the fiscal 2018 bill. We're looking at a boost of, for veterans programs, approximately 5%. The bill overall, about 4% over the fiscal 2018 level. Most of that discretionary funding goes to veterans programs. But there is a big influx for military construction this year. Um, those are projects that can that can fund, you know, army bases, navy construction projects, family housing for military, as well as schools for military family support for education. It's very much a bipartisan bill that uh, typically is one of the first to come out of the committee. And this year, this is the first of the twelve bills to be marked up in either chamber. Great. And Catherine, why don't you walk us through the legislative branch bill? Absolutely. Uh, Well, the legislative branch bill does just what it sounds like. It funds the legislative branch, but that's not just Congress. There's also a variety of legislative branch agencies that also are funded under this bill. So the Library of Congress, Capitol Police, the Government Accountability Office, and in the spotlight this year, the Office of Compliance, which is basically the watchdog of the workplace on Capitol Hill. This House bill that will be marked up later this week, clocks in at around $3.8 billion, and that's just House expenditures and the joint expenditures between the House and Senate. The Senate sets their own spending for their own chamber. One other thing to note is that, once again, lawmaker salaries have been frozen in this proposal. They've been frozen since 2010. And Kelly, there is one really big issue that we've we've seen a few years in a row with the military construction VA bill regarding whether or not veterans can access medical marijuana in certain states. Can you walk us through what those debates have been about and what to expect this year? Also, just to add, this bill ranges anywhere from the high 80 billion to the low 90 billion this year. The House proposed, you know, just as a marker, a measure that's almost 97 billion if you count war accounts that don't count against the budget caps that are also being used in this bill for some military construction. To go back to the medical marijuana issue, In the House, it's typically spearheaded by Representative Earl Blumenauer of Oregon. He has worked with even some Republicans in the House, namely what comes to mind is Dana Rohrabacher of California, a big advocate, a Republican in California who who wants to allow veterans to speak with their doctors at the VA about possible recommendations for medical marijuana in states where it's legal. The reason that we see this end up on the House floor is because Representative Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania has long vocally announced his opposition to opening up medical marijuana for veterans. I remember a key thing he said over the years is that we don't need more high veterans um, out there. And one of the things that could change that conversation this year is that Congressman Charlie Dent is, of course, leaving Congress very soon. 
So while he's started off as the chairman for Milcon VA in the House, someone else will be carrying this bill across the finish line later this year. And there, we don't yet know who that will be officially or how strongly they may feel for or against medical marijuana for veterans. Definitely, Jen. And I think that that kind of speaks to a larger kind of sea change in a view, definitely amongst Republicans. We've seen former House Speaker John Boehner also talk about opening up um, an avenue of medical marijuana for veterans because there is so much pressure from the opioid crisis across the country that there are a lot of lawmakers desperate to kind of find a different way to help treat pain for veterans. And Kelly, one of the other issues in the Milcon VA bill this year that could cause a bit of partisan debate and tension is a provision for the Guantanamo Bay detention facility in Cuba. Can you explain to us uh, what that will do and why there is some some question about that line item? Yeah, a 69 million line item in the uh, House Military Construction VA Committee report uh, discussed before it was even seen publicly is the major issue here. This is a new facility at the Guantanamo Bay prison in Cuba that's run by the Navy. Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Florida, top Democrat on the Military Construction VA subcommittee, has already announced opposition to this, not just at the subcommittee markup, but at a hearing prior to the bill even being unveiled. She knew this was coming, and she wanted to let everyone know that she was against it. The bill includes $69 million for a high-value detention facility at Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay Naval Station. Mr. Chairman, there are 41 detainees at Gitmo. This works out to a cost of $1.7 million dollars per detainee. In my, in my opinion, this is a huge waste of resources, especially when balanced against the needs of our own military service members. So I strongly oppose the inclusion of this project in our bill. So this will definitely be something that I think comes to the very end of negotiations. But with a Republican-controlled Congress and president, it's quite possible that this could end up remaining on the table and making it to Trump's desk. And Catherine, the legislative branch bill is a very broad bill, and it impacts Capitol Hill to quite a a great extent. And one of the issues that we've seen throughout the past years with the Me Too movement and greater visibility and concern for sexual harassment in the workplace is that Congress has really tried to take strides to improve the working environment for everyone on Capitol Hill. And this is one of the first places we're going to see them put their money where their mouth is. So can you talk to us about the sexual harassment provisions in the spending bill and how they would impact the working environment on the Hill? The reckoning has certainly reached Capitol Hill. Tim Ryan from Ohio, he's the top Democrat on the legislative branch appropriations subcommittee. He really summed it up. Across the country, industries and organizations are reckoning with the dark reality of workplace harassment, especially sexual harassment. It has become abundantly clear that Congress is no exception to that. And the elected officials here in Washington are being called to lead and we must answer that call. Uh, At least eight lawmakers have decided to either resign or retire directly related to uh, sexual harassment allegations, either their own issue or an issue within their office. Within the legislative branch bill, the Office of Compliance gets their funding, and that's the office. If a staffer is being harassed, that is where they would go to make a report to seek guidance about how to handle the situation. Uh, Because each office is run individually under lawmakers or under a committee, there's not an official HR in each office. That would mean there would be, you know, 100 HR offices in the Senate. And so they try to consolidate there at the Office of Compliance. 
the director of the Office of Compliance said that requests for training against sexual harassment have skyrocketed uh, since the House and Senate both put in requirements for training for all staff and members. OC would see a 9% boost in funding in fiscal 2019. They already, in the omnibus spending bill that was passed in March, saw $1 million increase. The increase will probably be used to have specific staff members for training on Capitol Hill. Right now, there's no staff member whose full-time role is training on Capitol Hill. One thing to note is as other measures, non-spending measures, try to tackle the sexual harassment problem on Capitol Hill, the OOC is watching that closely, and they said very clearly to the subcommittee members that if big, uh, there is a big overhaul of how sexual harassment reporting and resolution is handled on Capitol Hill, the OOC could need more than 50% more funding going forward in the future because they could be given the rights to investigate allegations, and they would need many more lawyers, investigators, and therefore more resources. So lawmakers are definitely watching out for other bills, not just the spending bills that are moving on sexual harassment. And one of the other really big provisions that lawmakers and their staff are watching for is the United States Capitol Police funding levels. There's been a lot of concern about security both in their Capitol Hill offices and back in their district offices as well. Can you walk us through how much USCP would see an increase in funding and sort of how that will directly relate to lawmakers and their staffs? Well, funding for the Capitol Police has been on a steady increase for a long time. Pretty much since 9-11, there's been steady increases in Capitol Police funding. In fiscal 2019, the House bill uh, that's on the move would have a 7% increase for Capitol Police. Uh, that would be up to over $450 million. The increase is going to be mostly focused on security and parking garages and pre-screening of people entering the Capitol. But anyone who works on or around Capitol Hill knows that the Capitol Police is a constant presence, uh, either in uniform with the big guns or with the dogs, the Capitol Police cars everywhere. A big concern that has arisen since last year's uh, baseball practice shooting is members off campus, whether gathered in groups or in their own district. There are concerns that district offices and events in the district may need more security and the staffs uh, out there in around the country may need training. And the Capitol Police is really trying to step up and provide that training and coordinate with local law enforcement. And one of the other changes that we could see in this year's Ledge Branch bill is to the House Speaker's Office. What's going on there? Yeah, so this is a very interesting change. Um, previously, former speakers of the House have had the opportunity to keep an office on Capitol Hill for up to five years. And that includes privileges to an office, uh, to hire up to three staffers, mailing privileges, um, and to have a phone line. This year's legislative branch bill would cut that down to one year. And interesting comments made during the subcommittee markup before the recess so two weeks ago was Nita Lowy, a Democrat of New York who's the top Democrat on the full House Appropriations Committee, 
She passed on a message from Nancy Pelosi, former Speaker of the House, current minority leader, that they wouldn't mind seeing that funding slash completely, not just from five years to one year. They don't want it to happen at all. Uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan, who we all know is um, making a move towards the exits at the end of his term, he, under this bill, would have only one year of an office on Capitol Hill. But we also know that he sleeps in his current office, so it's unclear right now whether he'll take advantage of that privilege or perk, however you see it. I think that's one of the best things about the legislative branch bill is that we get to kind of get an inside look at how lawmakers are funding their offices in a way that, you know, Congress isn't subject to federal freedom of information requests. So there are a lot of lawmakers who live in their offices, and it's not very clear how much that costs the architect of the Capitol for year to year. Absolutely. Also, funding for each member's office and how they pay their staff is every year a big point of contention because there's often a brain drain on Capitol Hill as talented longtime staffers who have tons of institutional memory and expertise in what they do, they can make sometimes twice or three times as much going to the private sector. So you might time out of your time on Capitol Hill if you want to buy a home or start a family uh, and doing that on a Capitol Hill salary. It can be done. I know people who are doing it and good for them, but it is definitely has to be a challenge in the expensive market of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for joining us on the CQ Budget Podcast, and thank you to Kelly Madrick and Catherine Tully-McManus for joining me. Great as always, Jen. Well, it was so fun to be here. I am Jennifer Shutt. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and NPR One, and please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall. 